My name is Jordan, and I want to share with you about an encounter I had with Christ. The Holy Spirit uh, at work, and the most I've ever experienced it. About seven years ago, working um, coaching with a, a group of young men, we took a football team up to the San Juan Islands in a, a retreat, at a retreat. Barnes Island was our uh, destination. And it was a time for bonding, fun, leadership, football, all of that. This group of athletes uh, was a great group of students, uh, but sometimes they took it a little too far. And they crossed the line on some skits that we were doing. And as a coaching staff, we were a bit disappointed because one of our main priorities is to uh, build champions of these young men. Not just champions in the football field, but in life, and build character. Uh, and so, as a coaching staff, we had an opportunity to sit together and decide how are we gonna respond to this? We were upset, we were hurt. Um, we felt like, okay, we could yell at them, we could make them run. Um, but over prayer um, and conversation, uh, we decided to approach this a little bit differently. We decided to respond uh, by just sharing how we were feeling, sharing from our hearts uh, to these athletes. And as we were sharing, nearly night, nine or 10 o'clock, and uh, you can start to see some of these students, their eyes welling up, uh, feeling the impact, and I felt like the Holy Spirit started to work. One of our athletes, our senior athletes in the back, uh, Luke, his name was, and raises his hand and says, Coach, I need to get baptized right now. So we kind of look at each other, it's a little strange, it's nighttime, the ocean, freezing cold, but when God speaks, we gotta move on it. So we decided to baptize him, we head down to the ocean, at this point, so many kids just in tears. So for the next hour, just baptizing one athlete after another. Nearly 20 athletes gave their life to Christ. It was a powerful moment. I've never seen the Holy Spirit work like that ever in my life. Athletes that you never thought would turn that corner were pouring their hearts out to Christ and connecting with each other and sitting with groups of each other, just talking and praying uh, deep into the night. And so. Again, I've never seen the Holy Spirit work like that. It's an encounter with Christ that I'll never forget. It's a powerful testimony. I, I love hearing stories of what God is doing uh, in and through you guys uh, at North Shore. Good morning. How's everybody doing? I think, I, sorry, I think I can take this off, actually. I'm, uh... Thank you. Thank you very much. That's pretty amazing, wasn't it? Um, yeah, I'm, I think I'm like 60 feet. Well, maybe not that far. So I'm definitely more than six feet from most of you, right? Um, there's plenty of room here. Those of you standing in the back, can you just come right here? We got plenty of room. We'll make, we'll make more. Um, welcome, you guys. I'm, I'm really glad to be here. And uh, we, as you know, we've been Going through what, what's been one of my favorite series, Faces in the Crowd. Have you guys been enjoying that? Yeah, I have too. Um, before we get started, though, I, I just want to have a little fun with you guys and, and show you something. Most of you are probably familiar with this. Has anybody seen the Where's Waldo pictures? Uh, puzzles, if you've done a puzzle, they're impossible. <laughs> Every piece looks the same. I mean, you look at this, right? And Waldo, the, the, the characteristic of him, of course, is he has this red and white striped shirt on, right? Well, so do the boats. I mean, look at that. And so does pretty much everyone in there. So it's really hard to find him. And they do that on purpose, don't they? Can, can anyone spot Waldo from where you're sitting? I think you'd have to have binoculars, <laughs> right? I'll make it much easier for you, okay? On the far right, there you go. There's mermaids on a rock, and then there's a boat in front. Do you now see Waldo? Huh? 
There he is. He's got a little brown hat on. Second to the left. One of the only men with shirts on in that boat. There's Waldo, right? See, everyone else is just a face in the crowd. In fact, it's been designed for them to, to just kind of blend in and Waldo to blend in with them, right? But that's who you're searching for very intentionally. You're trying to find that one person in the crowd, Waldo, right? I know this is a stretch, <laughs> but similarly, Jesus saw the faces in the crowd. Jesus had encounters with individuals. It was almost like when I read the Gospels, he's just going about his business, he's got a meeting here, he's got this to do, and then someone approaches him or someone is brought to him. It's like Jesus interrupted, right? But if you read those stories, his intention, his, his attention is 100% on that individual for as long as he's with that person. And as you know, if you've read those stories, and we have, we've looked at the, the 10 lepers, right? We've looked at the demoniac last week. We, we looked at the rich young ruler. Today we're going to look at someone else. But those people are profoundly changed. And some of them profoundly challenged by Jesus' encounter with them. Have you ever felt like a face in the crowd? Have you ever wondered if anyone would notice if I stopped going to church here or any other large group setting? Would anyone notice that I'm gone, that I'm missing? Does my presence here really matter? I don't know about you. I've, I've asked those questions before. This morning I want us to read a story together about someone named Zacchaeus who might have had a similar question. Am I just... A face in the crowd. So let's turn, if we could, to uh, Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. If you don't have your Bible with you, that's fine. Just listen to the story. Luke 19, verse 1. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, today has salvation come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son, a son of man came 
to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Jesus, I love that story. And I know people in this room love that story and people that are um, watching on the internet love that story. And so many other stories. Thank you, Lord, for the Gospels. Thank you that we can read about your encounters with people throughout the Scriptures. And thank you also, Jesus, that we can hear about encounters that you're having even today, as we heard from Jordan just a moment ago, share on the screen about how you showed up and how the Holy Spirit showed up and how students came into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ that day. And Lord, I thank you also that we all have our own story about our encounter with you and our encounters with you. And I pray, Lord, that we would never, ever refrain or be afraid of sharing those with a lost world because it desperately needs to hear about you about your love and your grace and your kindness and your mercy and your forgiveness and to be reconciled to the God that created them. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, be with us today. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Amen. So this morning, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about not one man, Zacchaeus, but two men. Two men who were both rich and had very different perspectives. Last week, if you remember, Pastor Scott talked about the rich ruler in chapter 18. And I'm not going to go through the whole story, but I will go through the beginning uh, part of that. If you want to read along or just listen again. Chapter 18, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus offers him treasure in heaven. He's got plenty of treasure here on earth. But Jesus offers him treasure in heaven. Treasure that's unaffected by moth, by rust, by war, by fire, by political or social upheaval, by a plummeting you know, market, uh, recession, or a pandemic, or failed banks, or whatever else comes along, right, that could reduce him to ruins. My friends, that is the perfect situation. The, God's, the God of heaven says, I have treasure in heaven, and it's yours. All you have to do is let go of this. 
And he says, no. Remember, he was extremely rich. But the cost of trusting and following Jesus was too expensive for him. The rich ruler was living from a worldly perspective. You can fill that blank in if you'd like in your notes. A worldly perspective. Maybe his identity was tied up in his wealth. Maybe his security for sure was tied up in his wealth. Maybe his sense of self-worth, how he was perceived by others, was tied up in his wealth. We don't exactly know. But he said no to Jesus. He gave up treasures in heaven. And it says he walked away very sad. You know, I've heard it said nobody enters heaven pulling a U-Haul trailer. Has anyone heard that? It's true, right? You enter this world naked and, well, you don't leave with a U-Haul trailer. I'll tell you that right now. You cannot get into heaven with anything but, but yourself, right? And he knew that. He knew the law. He was... I've kept all those things from those commandments from my youth. He knew he couldn't leave this earth with what he had. But he was unwilling to give that up. He was holding on to it too tightly. And following Jesus was just too costly for him. Well, now we turn to Zacchaeus, right? The other Rich man, he was a, a chief tax collector, right? Also rich, and I'm going to go out on a limb here and say this. Zacchaeus lived from an eternal perspective after he met Jesus. First we see in Luke 19.2 that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. Zacchaeus was a man who was curious Seeking to know who Jesus was. He needed to know who this man was that had entered Jericho and was passing through it. He didn't want to just ask a friend, hey, you know, go check that guy out and you know, tell me what you hear about him. I might have done that. No, he wanted to know who Jesus was. And then there was the rich ruler. He wasn't seeking to know who Jesus was. He was seeking to prove a point. I know what the test is, and I've already passed it, right? All these commandments that Jesus threw out, bing, 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 I have kept from my youth. Wow. There's some confidence there, isn't there? I have kept from my youth. I don't know if I've kept anything from my youth, certainly not my baseball collection, let alone commandments from the Lord, right? But he was confident that he had already passed the test. Zacchaeus, as we know from the story, encounters a crowd. And he's small in stature. He knows he has no opportunity to really see Jesus from where he is. So he needs to do something. And so he runs ahead. And he climbs a tree. And he opens himself up to seeing from a higher perspective. And I think we could also see from reading the story that Zacchaeus took some risks here. 
Just imagine what that tree experience might have been for him. It was a bit awkward, to say the least. This is a rich man, right? He's, he's not wearing clothes to climb a tree, to say the least. But he does. He's small in stature. Who knows how far apart the branches were. He, he just makes it work because he wants to see Jesus. He's also not with his own crowd, right? We heard how, <laughs> how they turned against him right there, uh, which we'll get to again. But he's not with his own crowd, so he's vulnerable. If they decided to come and harass him for what they had done to, to them... He couldn't go anywhere. He was in a tree. He was stuck. And yet he's willing and hopeful to see Jesus. The rich young ruler, he approaches Jesus with confidence. And yet he passes on Jesus' offer. I think because he can only see what's in front of him and what he has to lose, not what he has to gain from an eternal perspective, right? So Luke 19, 5 says, and when Jesus came to the place that Zacchaeus was, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. And so Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, right, the crowd, they all grumbled. He has gone in to be, with, be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Right? It seems like there was always that element. When Jesus was teaching and preaching, there were those that were open to what he was doing and saying. And those that were always seeing, in a sense, from a legalistic standpoint... He's eating with sinners. He's being with sinners. That guy's a sinner. I don't know if it's jealousy or something else, but you notice that. When he's teaching and preaching to a crowd, there always seems to be that other element that just doesn't see the situation like Jesus sees it. Zacchaeus was just a face in the crowd even disadvantaged, right? Not able to get a good look at Jesus without doing something extraordinary, despised by those around him as a sinner, and he's not mobile. He can't move to where, if Jesus had changed his, his path even slightly, he would have completely missed seeing the Lord. Or he might have thought, because Jesus as I said before, is always intentional. Jesus knew where that man was, even if he was obscured in the tree, and he walked right up to him. In a very personal, very intentional way. He comes to that exact spot that Zacchaeus is located, looks at, up at him, calls him by name, and invites himself to stay as a guest in Zacchaeus' home. You guys, can you imagine just how honored Zacchaeus must have felt entertaining the God of the universe in his home? I want to ask us this question. 
How would you feel if Jesus met you today and said, I'm going to stay at your house today? Would you feel excited? Would you feel stressed? Would you feel unworthy? Would you feel fearful? Would you feel joyful? I think it might depend a little bit on whether or not you knew who had invited himself to your house today, right? If you really knew Jesus, it'd probably be like, hey, yeah, come on over. When, oh, yeah, we can you know, grab some burgers or whatever, and you know, we'll, we'll have a great time. And there'd just be, you'd, you'd be chill, right? You'd just be hanging out with your really good friend. But if he's someone that you maybe honored and respected, knew very little about or didn't know at all, how many of you would be freaked out? <laughs> Show of hands. I guess it's just me. <laughs> oh, there we go. Right? I mean, think about it. It's like you're, you're going to be entertaining some kind of dignitary. Like, who, is, who exactly is this? I know he's important. I know he's done some amazing things. Uh, what do we do? Uh, I'm going to call ahead, get a maid service over there right now. And then maybe uh, let's, we'll do Mediterranean, right? Yeah, that'll be a good, uh, we'll cater that. Mm-mm. No, we'll, uh, we'll do some kind of, we'll do like a four-foot sub, right? We'll do like a, a mutton, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, right? Where the mutton's nice and lean and the tomato's so ripe. It's perky, I love that. That's what we'll do, right? I mean, you'd be thinking about it. How can I best entertain this person? But I think that says a lot when we think about what would happen if Jesus invited himself to our house today? Would I be joyful or would I be stressed? And why is that? So point number two in your notes, if you're taking them, having an eternal perspective is so important. Luke 19, 8, and, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. We don't know exactly what their conversation was like. We don't know how long Jesus stayed in his house. But we know that when Zacchaeus stood and he made this announcement, something profound had happened in his heart. Zacchaeus, in contrast to the rich ruler, made the declaration that he was going to give half of what he had to the poor. Now, we can certainly applaud him for that, right? I mean, what, what a wonderful thing to do, right? But he goes further to say this. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. So with half of what he started with, he's going to pay back four times what he has paid to anyone he has defrauded, which if you're a tax collector in these times, collecting for the Roman Empire, right, you've probably defrauded many people that you've collected from. So there's a lot of people that he has to pay back fourfold. <laughs> we were talking about this earlier in the week, and Tyler, one of the guys on the teaching team here, he, he pointed out to the rest of us that the math wasn't working out. Zacchaeus owed a debt he couldn't pay. 
at least with his, his current cash flow, right? He'd, he'd need to work this debt off. It would, it would be an ongoing commitment that he is proclaiming at this point to pay back everyone, everything, at 400%. It's a huge commitment, my friends. But he was willing to make it. Why? Because his life was changed by his encounter with Jesus. Why was he willing to make such a crazy commitment? Well, he's decided at this point to give up a practice that obviously has defined his life. Because you're not going to continue robbing and, and cheating from people and paying people back four times. <laughs> that makes no sense, right? So he's repenting. This, my friends, this is a moment of repentance for him. And he's repenting before God and man of his wicked ways of cheating and defrauding people. And that's why I think Jesus says this, the very last two verses. Today, salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Zacchaeus was lost. He was lost in his passion to make money, to defraud others. Yet because he was willing to seek after Jesus and to do whatever it took to see him clearly and to obey Jesus and to bring him into his home and to repent of his cheating and his willingness to give up what he could not ultimately keep for himself, Zacchaeus was saved. Missionary Jim Elliott is known for saying this, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's not what the rich, rich young ruler did, but that is what Zacchaeus did. So third point, how can we see Jesus more clearly? Are we willing, are we willing to put our hearts and our lives and our minds and our ambitions and our dreams and our future and our choices in a position or an orientation to where we can see Jesus clearly for ourselves. Many of us are familiar with this passage from Revelation 3.20. It says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and be and he with me. Those of you who have prayed a sinner's prayer and invited Jesus into your heart, you're probably familiar with this passage, right? It reminds me of a, a little booklet that I read many years ago called My Heart, Christ's Home by Robert Boyd Munger. 
And I won't go into it. It's really, really short. In fact, there's an article you could find if you just Google that, My Heart Cries Home by Robert Boyd Munger. But it talks about our hearts having different rooms, right? Just like our homes. And I want us to consider some questions. As we think about this message, as we think about what God is calling us to maybe give up, Or let go of. Maybe that's a better way of putting it. To let go of. There's some questions that will come up here. The first one is, do you think Jesus, and just ponder this with me, do you think Jesus feels at home in your heart today? Or do you think he feels more like a guest? Do you think Jesus feels at home in your heart today? Or do you think he feels more like a guest? Kind of like what we talked about before. Are we rushing around trying to make sure everything's, you know, there's nothing bad for him to see or, you know, whatever. Don't go in that room, right? Or come on in. Would Jesus have full reign of your house? Is he welcome to look inside of every room? Or is there a room that's off limits? Why? What would it cost you to allow Jesus access to that room? Would it cost some freedom that you're enjoying, some comfort or security in a sense that you've established for yourself like the rich ruler maybe? Power? Would it cost you some power? What about popularity? Would it cost you financially? Would it cost you relationally? And the list goes on, right? What's one thing? Just one thing preventing Jesus from having full access to your heart today. And everything might just be absolutely fine and and you're walking hand in hand and that's awesome. But I know for at least some of us, maybe there's some distance. Maybe we've made some choices or maybe some things have happened and we don't trust him quite like we used to. We're not walking quite as closely to him as we used to, but we long for that. We're willing to go and climb that tree, so to speak, and to see Jesus clearly. What is it? What is it for you? I got a picture. I, it's my daughter. <laughs> she was very young, obviously. Uh, we're in Alaska on a, on a summer mission project. And um, she was about, I don't know, six months old at the time. I did get her permission, by the way, to show this photo. Um, that's sweet potato all over her face. She loves, loved, I should say, I don't know if she still does. She loved sweet potato. She would eat that, like, I don't know, by the gallon. In fact, her face started to turn orange. I'm not kidding. Like, even after you wiped it all off, it was still orange because it just, it was part of her, right? (laughs) Some of you might have heard this story before, but I think it's a good reminder 
There was a family, and they had a, a small child, a little older than her at the time, I'm sure. But this small child loved peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. And she had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in her hand all the time. And she's too short to see the top of the table, so she's always kind of, you know, by a chair leg or underneath the table eating her peanut butter and jelly sandwich that, by the way, no one was going to take away from her because this is the best. Well, one day, they invited guests over. They had this huge buffet, this giant spread of everything you could imagine on top of that table. But guess what? She couldn't see it. She didn't know it was there. They told her it was there, and they asked her just, just to give up the peanut butter. Here, honey, just give, give mommy the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. We got amazing food up here for you to eat. You know what she said? No. No. Right? This is mine. This is my peanut butter and jelly sandwich. This is what I eat. This is what I love. My precious. <laughs> right? But honey, just, just look at what we have for you. I'm not interested. This is what I need. This is what I want. This is what I'm accustomed to. My friends, we hold so tightly to those things that give us the most pleasure or comfort or that minimize our pain or our risk. But those things don't often bring us closer to Jesus, do they? And they can sometimes even hurt us. Maybe it's time to give Jesus everything. Our whole hearts our hopes, our dreams, and even our fears and our desires. And to let him who knows us best and loves us the most have full access to our hearts. Because even when we think that peanut butter sandwich is all there is and it's the best thing and it's all I've ever known, my friends, we know it's it pales. It pales in comparison to what Jesus has to offer. Treasures in heaven and a relationship where we can know him fully, where we can be seen by him and we can see him clearly. And we're not just a face in the crowd. I want to share a story with you as we begin to wrap things up here. I uh, went to school at uh, Washington State University. I'm not going to go into my whole uh, college career because it's too long. <laughs> I spent, um, well, I crammed, let's see, I crammed four years into ten, so think about that. Um, <laughs> anyways, I started out at Wazoo, okay, fine. And then uh, went to Cal Poly Pomona in Southern California. And while I was there, I met these crazy students and they loved Jesus, and I got involved in a ministry down there. And uh, one of those students, uh, her name was Deneen, and the sun rose and set in her hair. You understand what I'm saying? Like, I thought she was going to be my density, I mean, my destiny. <laughs> and, um, and I was dating her. I thought I was going to marry her. I mean, 
she's the only Christian woman I've ever known, and it's like, this is perfect, and you know, we'll live happily ever after, etc. And then I went home for Christmas break up here. She lived in Southern California, but we were going to meet at the, at the special Christmas, after Christmas conference. A thousand college students worshiping, you know, praying and just being together. I mean, it's like heaven, right? And then Deneen's with me. Wow. I get down there, <laughs> fly down, you know, early, get, get to that conference uh, before school starts. So we had about five days. And so I get to the conference. I'm so stoked, you guys. And I, you know, enter the lobby and I'm looking around and there's Deneen and so happy to see her. And she's like, Mark, we need to talk. And I'm like, what? Okay. She broke up with me. <laughs> she broke up with me right then and there. She had to you know, work on her relationship with the Lord and all these other things. And I was like, what? Really? I was devastated. The big meeting happened. Everyone was you know, in there worshiping the Lord and everything else. And you know where I was? I left. I didn't leave, you know, California, but I walked out the door and there was a park next door and I just wandered into this park and I climbed a tree because I wanted to be alone. And it was a, you know, big tree with lots of leaves and I knew I was obscured from everybody just sitting up in that tree feeling really sorry for myself and just basically devastated, right? And then I saw... Uh, a man come up over a hill and he walked towards the tree and I'm like, oh, he must not see that there's a path right over here and he just kept walking straight to the tree that I was in and he stopped right at the bottom of the trunk and he looks up at me. He says, hi, my name's George and the Lord sent me to talk to you. And I was like, uh okay, you know, and I helped him up into the tree. And he said, yeah, this conference, I'm, I go to UC Davis, I'm, you know, I, I'm, but I just felt like the Lord wanted to spend some time with me, so I left the conference, and I went down the hill to a park bench, and then the Lord just said, you need to go, there's a man in a tree, you need to talk to him. <laughs> and you guys, to me, like that, <laughs> that was a miracle, right? It's never happened since, it's never happened before, but I invited that man up into the tree and he introduced himself again and we talked and I just poured out my heart to him. And he was so encouraging. He knew exactly what to say and he prayed for me. I actually got a letter from him afterwards after the conference. But my friends, I understood after that encounter with George Navarra that I wasn't just a face in the crowd. God had sent someone to meet me in my deepest need at the time. John 3.16, we all know this, for God so loved the world. And that's true. But you and I are part of the world. As individuals, yes, you are a face in the crowd but it's your face. It's your face that he wants to spend time with. It's your, your house that he wants to come to. And he wants to come into every room in your heart and to give you far more than you could possibly gain here on earth or even imagine. 
And so I leave you with this, and this is basically my whole sermon. If you want to sum it up for anyone today, you can just say this. Are we willing to let go of, every, of whatever gets in the way of seeing Jesus? Whatever gets in the way of seeing Jesus more clearly. And will we trust him with what that looks like? That's it. So as we finish our time together, I just want to share with you, and our worship team's going to come up, um, but I want, to worship, I want to share with you Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, which is my prayer for us today. It talks about the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God that we sung about. You can read along with me if you'd like, Ephesians 3, 14 through 21, or you can just close your eyes and listen. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.